This is The Next Shift with Sunil Badami on Disrupt Radio. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling my age more and more. On one hand, I, I love how much I've learned and know after 30 odd years in the workforce. But on the other, well, Let's just say it's easier to tell my doctor what doesn't ache. It saves so much time. <laughs> and when I got my licence renewed the other day, I couldn't get it for 10 years because I'm over 45, which apparently means I'm also considered an older worker now too. Older worker. Oh my, do you think maybe it's time to put away those age-inappropriate kicks? So what does that mean for my job prospects? Because like so many of us, I can't afford to retire early anyway. As it happens, more and more older Aussies are returning to the workforce in record numbers in what some are calling the Great Unretirement. And although the Age Discrimination Act came into force 20 years ago, why are older workers still finding it so hard to re-enter the job market? And why has there only been one successful case in all that time? Well, today on The Next Shift, we'll talk to a pioneering CEO and innovator who started her own tech company at 57 and is still in the game at 70 and find out what the legal consequences of age discrimination might be after a landmark case this year. That's all coming up on The Next Shift on Disrupt Radio with me, Sunil Badami. The Next Shift with Sunil Badami. We challenge and inspire you to adapt, evolve and become an unstoppable force. So, if you're an older worker like me, apparently anyone over 45 is, how can you keep working and overcoming ageism discrimination? How can you keep finding interesting opportunities well past retirement age? And how can you turn your golden years into career gold? Although many older workers are finding it tough to re-enter the jobs market, one fearless pioneer has broken through the glass ceiling, starting her own tech company at 57 and continuing to lead companies into her 70s. Anne Moore has had a long and illustrious work life, over five decades leading tech, HR and training companies on a number of boards, lecturing at a number of universities, and she's still going strong as the Chief Operating Officer of groundbreaking food tech company Nourish. But when Anne decided to start her own tech startup, she was told she was the wrong age and gender. Did it stop her? Hell no. Welcome to The Next Shift, Anne Moore. It's great to have your company. Thank you. It's delightful to be here. Now, the aged care minister, Annika Wells, recently said at the Australian Press Club that within a decade, there'll be more people over 65 than there are people under 18 for the first time in Australian history. What do you think that means for the workforce? It means that you can wave goodbye to early retirement. It's because in demand will be a lot of the skills and expertise that are currently carried by people who are considered to be an ageing workforce. The ABS has reported that over 179,000 workers over 55 returned to the workforce between 2019 and 2022. A third of the total number of workers who have returned to the workforce in that time. Why are so many older people approaching or of retirement age returning to work? So there's a couple of reasons for this. The one that is front of mind for me is that people often have long-standing and preconceived ideas about how they want to spend their golden years. 
And it usually involves an early retirement and then getting on with a whole lot of other stuff that they wanted to do. It might involve travel, could involve, in fact, it generally involves travel of some sort, uh, the grey nomads and doing other things that they've always wanted to do. The reality of that once exited is not quite as sharp and appetising. So I see a lot of people who choose the exit lane too early and then need to come back in the merge lane to join up with the sorts of people and environment, let's call that work, that they find stimulating, challenging and socially rewarding and cognitively stimulating. So work actually has a lot going for it. It's how we choose to navigate that path, that, that path across our lifetimes that is going to be very seriously reconsidered. What do older workers bring to the workplace apart from experience or wisdom? I think that's probably sufficient, <laughs> certainly necessary and likely to be sufficient. I want to share with you some interesting research that came out recently that challenged some of the preconceptions we had about alpha males. And this story is actually going somewhere. They looked at the research that was done originally with very small wolf packs to see what contributed to their success. And the early findings or the original findings showed that alpha males were responsible for a lot of group success or pack success. It's interesting though that in subsequent research, they've not been able to replicate those results. And what they found in much broader, more robust and reliable research is that pack success is actually determined by, wait for it, the age of the pack members. So maturity and experience in life counts for a lot when it comes to success. I think that's what older workers bring. So should we be warning millennial workers and Gen Z workers to watch out for marauding packs of unretired yeah. older workers? Exactly. Look out for marauding packs or be more aware of the ones that are going to sneak up behind you. And look, if you do see one of those individuals sneaking up behind you, you'd be well advised to adopt them as a mentor because you're probably going to learn a bit. Um, it is really interesting having spent a couple of lifetimes or generations in the workforce that the things that we assume to be known and given are not seeing generations come through. There's a whole lot of learning that reoccurs with every workforce generation. And older workers, more experienced workers have an important role to play in how uh, information and knowledge is shared for the gain and benefit of all of the players. But given how many older alpha males are in positions of management or corporate leadership, why is it so hard for so many older people to get jobs? Yeah, it's a great question, isn't it? I wish I had a really succinct answer for you. I don't. Other than the hierarchy has a great knack at preserving itself. So those older males that we're referring to, the alpha males that are running boards, etc. And I don't want to generalise, but there is a vested interest in preserving the status quo. So we do see initiatives that invite diversity in age and gender and qualifications and experience on boards, but it's not mainstream. 
yet. Older workers can provide so many things, expertise, wisdom, mentorship, a really strong work ethic. So why are employers so reluctant to hire older workers? The short answer is blind spots. And what are those blind spots? Generally, a bias, a preconceived idea about redundancy, of concerns that are really deeply embedded in the psyche of many individuals about ageing itself. So this is a really interesting topic because as a society, we face a real paradox and that is that we have an absolute fear of ageing and death and yet we all strive to live long lives. So it's a natural paradox that should probably be challenged. And there is a movement to do that. Linda Grattan wrote The Hundred Year Life. There are many others who now point to ageing as a really important and valuable and vital process. It's not perceived as degenerative. It's rejuvenative, if that's a word. <laughs> Rejuvenating. So, yeah, there is a social bias against ageing, contrasted with the idea we all want to live long, happy lives. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because even only two or three generations ago, when the life expectancy was maybe 58 to 60, in most Western countries, you'd get your gold watch at 55, you'd go on a cruise at 56 and you'd be dead at 58, whereas we've got so much longer to live. But I have to say, as someone approaching 50, I actually feel as if I'm only just starting to really flourish at work with everything that I've learned and everything I've accomplished so far. But I am also worried about not getting hired anymore as I get older. So how can I make myself more appealing to employers who have these blind spots while still dressing my age? Okay, so my first advice to you here is drop the personal or internal rhetoric about that. The fear of that it really means that you succumb to that way of thinking, whether you realise it or not. It is about developing a bit of an attitude of defiance and running that down. Sunil, in my situation, I'm almost 70. I've just taken on the most challenging role of my career. And what's that role? I'm a Chief Operating Officer for a global scale-up that's looking at food science. So we're taking remarkable... Australian technology and science spun out of CSIRO into a food security space, into deep technology. So it's really progressive. It's right at the front end of what we need to be doing in a futuristic perspective. It's drawing on all of my expertise, my corporate expertise, my expertise as a founder. It is calling upon a whole range of skills and experience that I've developed in a compendium that I apply on a daily basis. You started a tech startup at the age of 
to 57. At an age when most people are thinking of winding back or retiring or enjoying the fruit of their labours, why did you decide to go into the cauldron of a startup at 57? And what keeps you going at 70? Uh, this is really interesting. Why did I do that? I went into a tech startup at 57. I would. I used to regularly say that the technology wasn't available for me to do that 25 years earlier. So it was. I came into the SaaS environment basically at the initiation of mobile SaaS technology. So you know, putting age to the side, the technology didn't present itself until that time. There's a good argument to say that I had to wait for that to happen. I couldn't have done that earlier. And so why did I go into the cauldron, as you put it? I love that expression. It's because I'm fundamentally defiant. And I wasn't going to take no for an answer. You probably recall the individual that I've spoken about several times that said to me, Anne, you won't be successful. You're not male, you're not 35, and you can't cut code. For me, that was throwing down the gauntlet. I was just going to get on with it at that point because I could see no good reason not to. Age is not a reason not to do something. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it, that we often celebrate very young, very precocious tech startup founders who have no experience and yet discourage people from taking on the same kind of startups at an older age. Statistically, startups are way more likely to be successful when there are older founders at the helm. That's a known. And let's have another conversation sometime perhaps about why funding. VC funding is so expensive. One of the reasons for that, I hypothesise, is because the likelihood of success of a 23-year-old being able to grow a company into the likes of Meta, for example, so astronomically high, the likelihood is it's such a risk that funding is really expensive on the basis of that. If it was easy to do, the funding would be easier. Now, look, it's really great to keep working when you love what you do or you're facing up to the challenge. I think of, say, for example, 93 years young Rupert Murdoch still running the family business. There go, Rupert. But... <sighs> didn't, he pass, didn't he pass away recently on an aircraft? <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> but compared to, say, your generation of workers who had defined benefit schemes, a lot of people who worked in big businesses or the public service who have basically been able to live quite comfortably on a guaranteed pension after they retired for up to 30 years. What about the rest of us, especially Gen X down? Can we even expect to retire at all now that most of us don't have guaranteed pensions? And many of us who've had to work in contingent jobs or freelance or on contract without a guaranteed superannuation payment may have very low balances anyway. Can we expect to retire? And while many older workers may want to work part-time as... Actually, I'll ask that question again. Can we expect to retire? Look... There are several answers to that. There's one of preference and one of necessity. We know that many women find themselves in their, their later careers 
in a position where it's not financially viable for them to retire for a whole range of reasons that we won't go into here. Having said that, let's look at the desire to retire. I think not. I, it's never occurred to me that I would one day retire. I might like a little bit more time for baking at some stage, but I don't think that's going to interfere with my day job. And my point is that I think there's a vitality that relevance and contribution brings to individuals. And if you think of age as a mindset, that relevance is actually what's key here. It's about being relevant. It's about being having contemporary views, being exposed to people of lots of different generations and being stimulated to think and contribute on a daily basis. I think that's the opportunity that stands in front of us now that we might not have had in the past. So what does this influx of older workers coming out of retirement, the great unretirement, mean for younger workers, especially in a competitive jobs market? Well, look, I think if we just go with the numbers, baby boomers were the largest generation in history. We've got waning, we've got an ageing population and waning generational populations. So I think it's going to be... Uh, for economic reasons, probably a matter of necessity that we get in next to each other and start working together. I don't think that older people should be taking the jobs of younger workers because there are different roles for them in the workplace. And it's working that out that becomes important. Given that we'll Given that we, or at least our children and grandchildren, will have much longer lives and working lives, with some estimates suggesting that workers in the future could have up to 17 jobs in 15 different organisations across five different fields, is the idea of a career dead, especially when so much work is freelance or contingent now? Mm. So... I think the idea of a linear career path is rather quaint. I think that those ABS statistics around five discrete careers, 17 roles, that's telling us that we can expect to have a degree of flexibility and chopping and changing. And that's how we want it. We don't want to be in a situation generally where we join an organisation and continue to contribute to that organisation over the course of an entire working life. That, that's the definition of horror for me. I could think of nothing worse, although I've met people that have done that. I think it's a, a pretty antiquated way of viewing our working lives. I think that we follow our interests. We need to be, to an extent, opportunistic. I think planning for a working life You'll note that I didn't use the word career. Planning your working life is going to have various different iterations and there are different interests that we get to pursue from time to time. I'm very pleased and proud of the fact that I've been a founder and a CEO and I've had multiple diverse careers across my five decades of work. Amor, thank you so much for joining us on The Next Shift here on Disrupt Radio. It's been great chatting to you. Welcome back. 
it's been called a great unretirement. We have more and more old Aussies returning to work. In fact, more than a third of the people returning to the workforce after the pandemic are older workers over the age of 55, even though more and more are reporting being underemployed or unemployed due to perceived ageism. Well, let's face it, the law and society generally don't stand for discrimination on the basis of your gender, sexuality, race, faith, disability, whatever. But why is it so hard for older workers like me, apparently because now anyone over 45 is an older worker, why is it so hard for us to get work? And why has there only been one successful case in the two decades since the Age Discrimination Act came into force? And what does it mean for older employers who might be thinking about getting someone younger in? To help us work out the implications for employers and older workers, we're joined by Melissa Scadden, the managing partner of Justitia, an award-winning employee relations law firm which assists corporate, government and not-for-profit employers create positive work environments. Welcome to The Next Shift, Melissa Scadden of Justitia Lawyers. It's great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Why do you think so many older people of retirement age are returning to work? And what do you think that might mean for the workforce? It's an interesting one. I think that there's probably lots of factors that are encouraging people to return to work. I certainly think during the pandemic, there was a bit of a call to arms and many did come out of retirement because they saw a need. And I think that's fantastic. And we've got to be grateful for that. I think there's possibly also economic factors as well that we're seeing certainly increasing costs of living and that perhaps being that, that pension or that super doesn't stretch as far as they perhaps thought that it might. And also perhaps just deciding that there's still something that they want to do and spend their time doing it. Given how many older people are in management, and I'm certainly not just thinking of, I don't know, 93-year-old Rupert Murdoch and 84-year-old Kerry Stokes and 81-year-old Jack Cowan. Why are so many employers so reluctant to hire or retain older workers, except for the boss? Oh, yeah, that's... I think a complex one and certainly comes back to the fact that as a society, we tend to just really value youth. And there are so many, sadly, so many stereotypes that I think are associated with older workers. And there's a lot of assumptions that they aren't able to, for example, keep up with technology, that they won't necessarily fit in with the culture. And I think that's really pervasive and in some cases maybe unconscious, some cases very conscious. But I think that there are those barriers. And because it's so pervasive in our culture, there's also a confidence issue too. And so I think that's possibly why some older workers are more reluctant to re-engage or even to challenge some of these stereotypes that we're seeing play out. But what's the definition of older worker, not just someone who's over retirement age, because there was a really interesting article a few weeks ago by the journalist, a few, because there was this really interesting article earlier this year in the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age by the journalist Stephanie Hall, which was titled Middle-Aged, Middle-Class and Underemployed. And increasingly, people over 45 are considered to be older yeah, it's crazy. And if you think, so last time, Snell, we were talking about the right to request flexible working arrangements. And under the Fair Work Act, someone who's over the age of 55 has that right. And so there's some assumptions there as well, isn't it? That, that I think is really quite interesting because the fact is, I think I read a stat that my kids are going to, on average, live to the age of 106. So 55 is not old, <laughs> even remotely. 
So I think the question of what is older is a really good one. Given the fact that many of us have either been, had intermittent work because we've had kids and taken time off for kids or because of the changing nature of the, the jobs market in which most of the jobs that are coming into the market aren't actually full-time jobs with benefits and pensions. They're actually contract or part-time or gig or casual or whatever. So a lot of us, including me, don't necessarily, can't necessarily afford to retire like our parents or grandparents did with defined benefit pensions. So what's that going to mean for all those people who have still got maybe another, well, at 45 technically, maybe another 60 years of life? That's right. That's right. And so I think it's so important that employers, that there are more opportunities for them to be usefully, gainfully employed. But there's also such a benefit the other way as well. We're hearing about the tight labour market, how the fact it's so hard to find employees. We've got the fact that we do have this ageing population and birth rates are decreasing as well. So there just are some structurally some really excellent reasons why we need to get some greater engagement from employers and more perhaps more incentives and encouragements for them to ensure that they're bringing these older and in inverted commas workers through the workforce. Yeah, a lot of people tell me, Melissa, how good I look for 59. <laughs> Sadly, I'm 49, but I look great for 59. I'd still take the company value. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Uh, <laughs> as you can see on the radio, I've got a great face for it. <laughs> it's really interesting, isn't it? Because it, we know about the Anti-Discrimination Act of 1975, the Racial Discrimination Act and Sex Discrimination Acts of 1984, the Disability Discrimination Act of 1992, and they all prohibit discrimination on the basis of identity, race, sex, gender, faith, disability. It would be unheard of for an employer to tell someone that they weren't going to hire them because they were a particular gender or disability or whatever, right? So... Despite the Age Discrimination Act being enacted in 2004, with those protections kind of supplemented by general anti-discrimination laws in every state and territory, why does ageism persist? It's, it's a really good question. I'd love to have an answer to it that then might help us solve the issue. I think that, again, it does come back to, as I spoke about, we've got a culture that does it values use and it, it, there's very much this idea that as you get older you become slower you become less competent somehow well and, according and to my children apparently that's already happened <laughs> there you go it, it starts young exactly <laughs> so it's very much there it's interesting looking at the stats so certainly the complaints that go through for example the australian human rights commission and so that's under the federal legislation it's only a very small percentage of them i think it was eight percent recently that were age discrimination related so there's a fewer number of complaints that are coming through and there's a tiny percentage of, that are actually, we're actually seeing as successful decisions. So in relation to the Commonwealth Act that you just spoke about, we've just recently seen the first successful age discrimination claim under that Act. Can you tell us a little bit more about this successful claim and what it was all about? Yeah, sure. So... There was a man called Alex Gutierrez and he is employed, he was employed as a chief accountant at a global maritime company. Now he was there for 25 years, long serving. In 2018, at the age of 68, he 
started off having a conversation with his employer. The, the managing director asked him what his retirement plans were. And he's a bit taken aback by this and essentially said, I've got no plans. Basically, I'm going to stay until you either kick me out or I think I, I die, was essentially how he put it left it at that but I think he felt a bit discomforted by the conversation a couple of months later he found that there was another employee that was transferred from an international office and there was some expectation that she'd be taking over from him when he did choose to retire he eventually felt compelled to provide an actual retirement date and said all right fine my date is going to be I think it was July next year when I'm turning 70. Now, despite that, his employer turned around and said, as of the end of this year, we're going to terminate your ongoing employment contract and you are going to then go on to a fixed term annual employment contract or some rolling annual employment contracts after that. And we're going to get you to train up this new employee to basically do your job. Now, he understandably was pretty unhappy with this and he decided to resign and then put in a claim for age discrimination. Now, he, he spoke about some really significant impacts there, that some really detrimental impacts on his mental health in terms of depression, anxiety, inability to work, insomnia, etc. His wife spoke about this particularly very vibrant man who was now living a miserable life. The court at first instance, so the first decision in the Federal Circuit Court, found that there had been some unlawful age discrimination and he was awarded to $20,000 in compensation. But interestingly, they said, because you resigned yourself, there's the discrimination didn't cause any economic loss, so we're not going to give you anything there. He appealed that to the Federal Court and recently they handed down a decision where they increased the damages awarded to $90,000. And they've provisionally said, we're going to award $140,000 for economic loss, because we basically found that if not for the discrimination, he wouldn't have resigned. And so therefore there was that kind of causative link. So significant both that we actually did have a successful age discrimination claim, but also that there were some pretty significant damages and economic loss awarded there that recognises the impact that these kind, this kind of contact conduct can have on an individual. And we're back with Melissa Scadden of Justicia talking about the legal implications of ageism. Why was it the first ever successful age discrimination claim in the nearly 20 years since the Act was in, it was brought, came into force in 2004? I've been pondering this and I've done a bit of reading and I don't think there's a straightforward answer, unfortunately. I think that there are certainly some issues in the way that cases are decided. So, for example, you need to have a comparator in our discrimination legislation. So you need to be able to demonstrate that you were treated less favourably than a comparator who essentially had all the same circumstances and materially no less different circumstances except for that protected attribute. So except, for example, age, so if they were younger. And that comparator is very narrowly defined. So it can be quite difficult for someone to prove that. So I think that's part of it. Also in the discrimination jurisdiction, there's a burden of proof issue as well. So the employee is required to produce evidence to demonstrate that they're discriminated against. 
if you're talking about uh, discrimination in offering of employment, that can be incredibly difficult. How do you produce that evidence that the reason why you weren't offered a job was because of your age? So I think that there are some issues, there's some sort of structural issues there that prevent it. And there's also just the fact that it costs a huge amount of money. Mr Gutierrez in this case, I think, even before he got to the appeal process, had already spent $150,000 to try and fight this. And very few people have got the means to do that. Why was he so concerned, as given that he was already saying he was going to retire by the following year, to be put on an annual contract, given that he'd said he was going to retire? He spoke about the impact, so having had 25 years of service, about the impact of basically feeling like he was being forced out. He said that he felt compelled to put this retirement age in. There was some dispute in the court about whether in fact that he was but because of the impact of basically feeling like he had lost his worth entirely, that created some, caused some very significant mental health issues. It meant that anything he was hoping to do in his retirement, so for example, he was hoping to help his daughter in her business, he was not able to do. And so, and it really impacted his quality of life. So I think it's, we have to remember, I think that so many, so many people their identity is really inextricably linked to their job. Mm. And taking that away, particularly in a way where they feel it's been incredibly unfair or they don't have a voice, can have a huge impact. What would your advice be to employers who they've got maybe a staff member who's been there for a very long time and may not be perhaps as energetic or even as sharp as they might once have been. What would be your advice to an employer seeking to find an alternate role for that person in a way that wasn't discriminatory or denigratory that enabled them to continue to offer their experience or perspectives or continue to work without necessarily incurring any bad feeling or a claim to the Human Rights Commission? It is incredibly difficult. I think, first of all, a really important thing is to make sure that you are dealing with facts and not assumptions. And so you might have to test yourself there because I think it's very easy to make assumptions about people. For example, if you're implementing some new technology, you might make assumptions that, oh, well, they just won't be able to get it. They won't be able to deal with that change. It might take them longer to get it. They might learn differently. They might need to go through a different process. They might need more support but that doesn't mean they can't do it. And so I think that's one thing that's really important. Also, it's important, I think, to just keep having conversations with the employee to understand how they're going, how they're finding things. Are there aspects of their role that they're struggling with? Okay, well, let's talk about what we might be able to do to change that. I think one of the biggest issues where we have a lack of, where employees get aggrieved is where they feel they haven't been heard. They've got a lack of agency in it. And sadly, that often comes from the fact that these conversations are difficult to have and people don't like having them. And so they'll put them off for as long as possible. How many of us have heard about the example about some employee that's been there from day dot who's a law unto themselves and they never get called in for any of their sort of conduct or behavioural concerns or performance issues just because that's just how they've always been as an example. So it, it's important to make sure that you're still having these conversations along the way 
just because an employee is older and you're concerned about an age discrimination argument doesn't mean that they shouldn't still be held to certain performance and conduct standards. It just needs to not be, the age just needs to have nothing to do with it. It just needs to be about their performance and their conduct. With 63% of Australians experiencing ageism, especially when they're applying for work in their <laughs> mid to late 40s and above. <laughs> Ancient. <laughs> my children actually, I don't know when my name changed from daddy to okay, boomer. <laughs> I get asked about in, the, in ancient times, Mum. What happened then? Have you ever tried to explain a video cassette to your children? Because <laughs> you've got to work through LPs, yep. then cassettes, and yep. then video cassettes. And yep. then they go, what's the point? Yeah, we were talking about <laughs> recording off the radio the other day. It blew their mind. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> so what would you say to someone who is middle-aged, middle-class and underemployed, who finds themselves in a jobs market that on one hand seems to be very tight, but on the other doesn't seem to offer them quite the work or conditions that they may have been used to last millennium? Yeah, so it's it is difficult, and certainly I think one of the one thing first first things to do is not to undervalue themselves. I think confidence is a huge issue as well, so don't undervalue yourself. If you feel that there might be some skills that you're lacking, then there's a lot of opportunity to go out and brush up on them, and I think that's always something that could be considered. But beyond that, I think it is important to actually really consider what it is that they want to be doing and look what roles are available. There, there is a lot there is a lot available, but it might not look like what they're used to, for example. So you might look at um, people who are used to being in the same role for a significant period of time or couldn't take a contract role because it's just not secure enough. And the fact is there are increasingly more and more contract rolled offers and some of them do lead to ongoing employment and they shouldn't be discounted just because you don't want to take a contract role. We also hear about senior entrepreneurship a lot as well. And so it's, I think it's really about exploring all the different options that might be available rather than thinking that you've just got to go back to the same role you've had previously. But when we think about age discrimination, Right, we often think of older people. Actually, I'll start again. Thank you so much for that. I'll remember that when I'm applying for my Deliveroo gig. Or... <laughs> <laughs> but when we do think about age discrimination, we often think of older people. But what about young people entering the workforce? Do they experience any kind of age discrimination? Yeah, I think they absolutely do. I think that there's, and you look at the much maligned millennials, for example, I think there's possibly age discrimination that occurs throughout. We all jump to assumptions about particular categories or particular age groups. I think with the younger workforce, it's very difficult for them in terms of the lack of experience. And so frequently that's relied upon as well. And it can be very hard for them to get the foot in the door as well. So it's certainly not just at that older end of the scale. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for keeping us appraised of both ends, although I feel I'm more going towards one. 
Yeah. Maybe I'll get your advice. prime. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's weird, isn't it? Like I've reached this age now where I'm at 50th and 60th birthday parties and they're not my parents' friends, they're mine. <laughs> <laughs> But are they fun? That's the important bit. They've got to be fun. Yes, they are totally fun. They always end relatively early and the music is not too loud and we've all got a seat. Well, that's even better. <laughs> Thank you so much for filling us in, Melissa, from Justicia Lawyers. No problem. Thanks for having me. Well, I guess... As older Aussies start to outnumber younger ones, it doesn't make sense to disregard their experience and passion for work if they want to work. It's clear we'll need more and more taxpaying workers to support those who can't work. So, if it means staying active and engaged as long as you love doing it, I say why not? You're only as young as the job you do, right? <laughs> Well, it's time to clock off this shift. Thanks to the indomitable Anne Moore for sharing her inspiring story. And you can find out what Anne did when she was told she was the wrong age and gender to get into tech. It's on our program page at disrupt.radio. And you can find out more about what Justicia does at justicia.com.au. Or just go to the link on our program page. Just watch out for those marauding older workers, okay? <laughs> I'm watching you. What about you? Have you ever experienced ageism? How did you respond? And what do you think older workers like me have to offer? Share your thoughts on our socials on Facebook, Twitter, Insta, and of course LinkedIn, or drop us a line on our contact page or on our program page. This is Disrupt Radio. I'm Sunil Badami. See you next time for the next shift. Tune in to Opportunity. On Disrupt Radio, you'll hear Megan Flamer and Alan Jones. You have a theory about accelerator programs. Yes, we've been through, well, we've mentored and coached in a few accelerator programs. Just a few. Over the years. <laughs> Whether you're just starting out or figuring out your next stage of growth, the advisory board is here to lend a helping hand. Like, what are the blind spots that we have? What are the things that you just don't know. Megan Flamer and Alan Jones have helped thousands of founders, CEOs and organisations all over the world take their lives and businesses to the next level. How are the startup ecosystems different around the world? The Advisory Board. If they're a casual employee, their minimum entitlements will be different to somebody that's permanent, for example. Live on DAB+. I have to be prepared to, to take constructive criticism and take it on board and listen to it and you know incorporate it. Online and on demand at Disrupt.radio.